Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Podcast. Watch us live every Sunday morning at 9.30 or 11.05 a.m. at gosblive.com or visit us in person. You can find directions at gostonebridge.com. Connect with us on our social media at facebook.com slash and our Instagram at sbchurch. All right, so we've been working on this series uh, called Building Family Values. And last week we talked about uh, how to fill your life. And really it was about what to fill your life with. It comes out of Ephesians 4 where um, Paul actually says, fill your life. Do you remember what it was last week? Fill your life with what? God's love. Yeah, because God's love changes everything. And the way he has loved us means, boy, it can just fill us up and change everything with us. But this week, this week, um, I'm really excited to talk about this because I think this is where we really struggle in life. And this is where, you know, most of us would say, yeah, but how how can you feel love or, or how can you build your life on God's love when bad things happen in your life? And they do. Um, God doesn't promise that every circumstance that you go through, everything that you go through is going to be something that you want to go through. And it's not, it's not, it's not God's job to fix your life the way you want it to be, right? Everybody agree with that? Okay. Some people don't. Okay. That's all right. You know, I understand we, we, that's, we want a God to do it that way because we think, boy, if God just did it our way or just, you know, made everything work the way. I would want it to work out, man, how wonderful my life would be and how happy I would be. And the problem is all of your friends and everybody else, including maybe your husband, would say, yeah, but my life wouldn't be happy if that's the way it worked. Because God has a plan and God works through that plan for us and and the relationship says, I trust him. I, I believe that God will take me through things, things I like, things I wanna go through, but he'll also take me through some of the things that I don't like, that I don't wanna go through, but God knows what he's doing in the midst of all these uh, things. So I want to introduce sort of a, a, um, an, an idea to you called framing. And uh, most of us, when we think of uh, framing something, we think of a picture, right? You put a picture frame and you say, okay, I see, you're, you're talking about boundaries or something like that. Well, not exactly, but I understand that. But you, ever, you ever see the old movies, you know, where the movie guy's there? And what do the movie guy, you know, what, is, what does the movie guy do? He goes... Right? You know, he's like, like this. In fact, he may look at someone and say, oh, you know, you'd work perfect in the movie. And he's framing, you know, scenes in life and pe- people because that's what he does for a living. It, it, in one way, that, that's exactly what you and I do in life. We, we frame it. We see it in a certain light or from a certain perspective. And, and that's how it affects us, you know, our circumstances. Um, but there's something actually even kind of more powerful about the idea of framing. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. When Joni and I moved uh, uh, to the Woodlands, uh, we've gone through four houses since we've lived here. And uh, the latest house we went to is uh, the, probably the oldest house we'd ever been in. So we redid a bunch of it. And um, so a carpenter came to work on some things in the house. And my wife got him out there. And our, our house out of the back has large windows go from floor to ceiling and they look out over a pond. There are 25 houses on this pond. So the view was why we bought the house, honestly. That was the whole point. So she asked him, can you frame out all of those windows? Because the windows were, you know, were just sheetrock and window there. And we, we actually changed the windows out. And, um, and he did. He, he did it. In fact, just to let you know, our carpenter, my wife actually found him, was named Jesus. 
I know you think, of course he was. So Jesus is your, yes, Jesus is my carpenter. And so he, he comes to, to do all this and, and he frames all of that out. But the reality is he's not really framing it. He is trimming it, right? He's trimming the doors. He's trimming the windows. It gives it a different look. But it does focus your view out those windows, which is exactly what we wanted. If you talk to a builder, the builder would say this, and technically the builder's right. That's not really the frame. The frame is in the wall. It's the, it's the wood, the studs that go up and they keep you know, the wall steady and they hold the part on top and the window is placed in the framing of it. And the framing of it, you don't actually see the frame. Even the door, you don't, you don't see the frame of the door because the door is hooked to the frame inside and all to it. That's the framing of it. And it's exactly right. In fact, I want you to think about that. See this screen behind me? The screen is actually framed. It's, it's some sort of material that's stretched over a frame. And the frame gives it a shape. It gives it support. It's actually the frame that, that any kind of wires or connectors are hooked to that, that hang it in the air and make it stay there. And the reason it's long and rigid is because of the strength of the what? The frame. Not, not, the, not the material that's stretched over it. Not the circumstances in life. But the frame gives it strength. The frame gives it definition. The frame is what gives it meaning and purpose. And the problem with that is, the same way in my life and your life, you don't always see the frame. In fact, when, when you allow God to frame your life or you build your life based on this, this, this work of God, who God is, you frame your life in that way, you recognize that not everybody sees or understands the frame that's behind it. They just see the, you know, what's, what's out here, but they do see the definition of it. They see the work of the frame in your life. And I think it's important. We, we, you know, did this in a lot of different ways with our kids in a physical family, trying to teach our kids to frame their life based on who God was, what God did, um, God's forgiveness, his love, Yes, God's commandments, his laws, how he understands life. Because let's face it, God was here long before you and I were here. God created us. He gave us life. He made us in, as Genesis says, in his own image. So there's a, there's a sense that we're made like him in some ways. And God will be here long after, you know, you and I are gone from this earth or from, you know, the things of this earth are gone. Yeah, because God, God is powerful, he's steady, you know, he's always, and so if you, if you allow God to be the frame of your life and you frame your circumstances with who God is and what God has said, that changes the whole picture. It changes everything uh, about your life, changes everything about my life. So there's this guy in the New Testament named James, and um, if you don't know who James is, James was the half-brother of Jesus, one of the leaders of the early church, but you have to remember, you know, in the early church, the early church was not uh, big. It was not powerful. It was very small. Uh, they were pretty much uh, outcasts. And James, uh, being the half-brother, did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God until after 
Jesus was resurrected. And you think, well, are you making that up? You can go read the book of Acts. You know, it talks about this also. And, and James's life totally changes when he recognizes who Jesus is when Jesus is resurrected. And he writes this book. Not everybody likes the book of James. Some people think it's just way too, you know, hammering you on what you do and how you see things. The, the, the great reformer, Martin Luther, who lived five or 600 years ago, he did not like the book of James. He openly said should not be in the Bible because he, he relied so much on grace, he understood that part of it, that he thought James was way too works-oriented. But let me tell you what James does. James gets very practical about how you're going to live your life. And that's the way it has to work. Here's what God has done, and you have to take the circumstances of your life and see them with this frame and act upon them in the midst of this frame. God doesn't do that for you. But God does the framing for you, and the trust that you have is, is based on him. Or I would, I would say this, this is your faith. I'm just calling it a frame. That's what it is. It's, it, your faith is what will, will shape and will delineate you know, the things that you're going to do in life. And so here's how James actually begins his letter. He does it really fast. He jumps straight into it. This is what James, in fact, oh, I'll put a little uh, side bar out there to you to set this up. And just to let you know, I stole this. Just telling you, I stole this from a commentary, but I changed two words in it so that I, it's not plagiarism. Okay, so just let you know, but I'm just saying, it's not, not really mine. And, and they said in it, in the commentary this, they said to, to persecuted Jewish believers, because that's who James is, is writing to, uh, scattered among pagan peoples, James gave this surprising advice. Yeah, it would really be surprising uh, to us, but in the midst of their struggles and persecutions, he says this. If you haven't memorized the verse lately, this is in the New American Standard, which is what I memorized it in. And so obviously that's what God wants you to memorize it in because that's what, no, okay. Um, but it's a really good translation, literal to understand. And this is what he says. In fact, say this with me. Consider it all what? Don't, don't you like that? Yeah. Tell me how to be joyful. Tell me about how to be happy. I want to know. Just give me the secrets of happiness and joy. Consider, But in this case, he's saying this is how you should look at it, even though you won't look at, that, at it this way, because he, he says, my brethren, when you encounter various what? Trials. What? James. Obviously, James hit his head or something. You know, there, there's something that caused him to see it in the wrong way. No, when I, when I have troubles and trials and struggles, that doesn't bring joy to my life. That brings misery to my life. That brings confusion to my life. A lot of us, you know, when we're in the midst of those things, we say, is there really a God? I mean, how can you say there's a God if, if everything's not going well, you know, in my life? In fact, there was a, a family years and years and years ago. And um, still remember this, the, uh, the mom, one of the kids was not in good health and a small, small child, one of their children at the hospital and it ends up that the doctors have made it clear the child's not going to make it. And so I'm, I'm there with the family and um, we're praying and all. And, and so the wife asked me, and I, I don't blame her, I would ask the same thing. She said, will God heal my child? She means right now. Is God going to heal my child? I said, I can't, I can't say that he is. I, then she said this, have you ever felt this way? Then what good is he? <laughs> of course. That's her emotion right there. That, that, that's what she feels at the time. All of us could identify with exactly that. Now, now my answer would be this. This, was, this is my answer to her. Oh, listen, 
You don't want to go through life, the struggles of life, the difficulties of life, the pain of life without God. Are you kidding me? There's no way to face those things. If you don't have God in your life, you're not going to fix everything. A doctor in a hospital, they're not going to fix everything. If you don't have God to take you through these things, in essence, I didn't, I didn't have this concept then. If, if you don't frame your life on who God is in your circumstances, boy, it's really going to be a struggle. So he says this, and then he, he adds this part to it. Look at the next part of this verse. He says, uh, so as you go through these various trials, and then he adds this, knowing that the testing of your faith is going to produce something. It's going to produce what? Endurance. See, this is the great strength to go through life, the endurance. In one sense, this is, this is saying consistency. God will build a steadiness and a consistency in your life by taking you through trials and difficulties and him being the framework of your life because you will learn to build your life on who God is and what he says, not on the circumstances of life. The circumstances of life will not be the thing that shapes you. They will influence you, but God himself will be the one who shapes you and the one that, who leads you uh, as you go through life. You know, it's interesting when he says this in the, in the original language, this is a, not that I'm an expert in it, but uh, as I read guys that are, in the original language, this idea of knowing doesn't mean because a preacher told you. It's not what it means. Doesn't mean because you read it in the Bible, because they didn't even have that. They were just writing these letters at the time. This means because you know from experience, you've gone through it before. There have been things that, that God has taken you through before, and you said, this is a really bad thing. How can I be excited about this? And then you go through it, and you realize, no, actually, God used this for some really good things in my life. So here's something that you know, and the only way that you get there is because you have endurance, you, you hold on, you keep going, you stay, you stay consistent and you, and you move forward. And that's why he, he adds to this, and I really like this uh, part of the verse. He says, um, and let endurance have its what? Its perfect result. That means let God take this endurance he's building in your life and let him finish um, in your life so that you may be perfect and complete and what? Lacking in What? Anybody like that? <laughs> sure. I would like to be someone who is lacking in nothing. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He says, well, there's a way that you get there. Don't quit. Don't stop trusting. Let him build the endurance that you would stay with it and you would continue to look to God and you continue to look to God's promises. That's, that's how you frame your work, I mean, your life. And that's how people actually see there must be something in you that's keeping you going in the midst of all of those circumstances. Yeah, we all want that. We all say that that's exactly what I would like to have in my life. Now, this is not in your outline, but if you want to write down um, numbers, um, I think it's chapter, it's either 33 or 13. I don't know, one of those, numbers 33 or 13. Um, if you look in numbers, I think it's 13, in the 13th chapter of numbers, um, you'll find a story of where the Israelites are coming uh, out of Egypt. They've been in there for 400 years. Uh, God sends them a, a rescuer, Moses, but of course God was their rescuer, and they, he leads them out, 
And uh, they're going into the promised land. It had been promised to them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. But they'd never occupied the land. They're going to the land. And so Moses says, I need some, some men to go and look at the land and decide, can we take the land? How do we take the land? What are we facing when we go in the land? They're down in the desert area. And they're going into the Canaan area uh, by the Mediterranean Sea that's further north. They pick 12, one from each of the tribes. And these guys go up, and their job was to go and spy it out, scout it out, decide what we're going to do. And, uh, and they're to come back and to report. Well, when they come back and report, out of those 12, how many people do you think said, yep, let's do it, we figured it out? How many people do you think? Anybody? Anybody remember? Two. That's it. <laughs> Two out of 12. That's it. And does anybody remember the name of the, or the names of the two who came back and said, we can take the land? Joshua and Caleb. Exactly. Joshua. We know a lot about Joshua. He becomes the leader after Moses. There's a book at, with his name. Caleb we know less about, but Caleb is actually the one who stands up when he quiets the people of Israel and he stands up with Moses there and he says, we should take the land. We should trust God and, and do what he says we should do and we should take the land that he has given us. It does not mean they won't have to work for it. It doesn't mean they won't have to fight for it. It doesn't mean they won't have to go through hardships to take it. None of that is true. All of that is a part of how they will live their life, but they will live their life because this is how they are doing what? How they're framing their life, yes. Yeah, based on God, who he is, and what he says. I had a friend a long time ago, it was with the church, and he said, let's do this. We had a decision to make. Uh, it was one of those things where we were buying land uh, ourselves, and we we're going to pose it to the church, and uh, because there's some things that are really big decisions that we want everybody to um, comment on and vote on and to know about, and he said, well, let's do this. Let's pray that if this is of God, that everyone in the church would agree. That's what I did. Actually, I was kind of stunned at first. And I was like, have you lost your mind? <laughs> that everyone would agree. He said, yeah. He said, where do you get that from? That the way we determine if it's God's will is everyone agrees. I said, we don't agree on anything, right? I mean, we struggle with everything. That's the way we're made. We're, we see things differently. We go through life differently. In fact, I told him, I said, well, here's, you know, if you want to look at the Bible, here's what I can, I can tell you. I can show you where if two out of 12 agree, it's the right thing. That's what I can show you. And I said, that's not even a majority, right? This, you know, it's because sometimes it takes a lot of faith, a lot of framing to trust God because it's difficult and we look at the circumstances, and it's difficult. So you say, so why did the other 10 disagree? Let me tell you why. Because they went to the land. They saw the good things. They saw the harvest, wonderful, land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, what an incredible land. But here's what they also saw, and they name them. They said, we saw three things. We saw warriors. We saw fortified cities. And we saw, man, this will really mess you up. We saw giants. <laughs> they were bigger than us, right? They were stronger than us. Israel was not a group of warriors. They had been living in Egypt for 400 years. They were slaves in Egypt. They, they made bricks out of mud. They were shepherds in, in, in Egypt. They were not warriors. And they did not, you know, have the size of athletes or warriors, you know, that the land of Canaan uh, had. When I was uh, in high school, I remember I went to Florida 
And uh, there at a banquet, met a guy named Norm Evans. It was a Christian banquet. And Norm Evans was an offensive, I believe he was an offensive tackle for the Miami Dolphins. And uh, they were undefeated that year. And I remember shaking hands with Norm Evans. I'm, I'm 15 or 16 years old. And, you know, I wanted to be an athlete. And so yeah, this was a great opportunity. I'd go up to shake his hand. And I shook two fingers. That was, that was it. I'm serious. I, that's all I could get my hand around. And I know you should say like, hey, you know, and all that. But I'm going like, what in the world is going on? And it made me realize, no, he's a giant. He's not a normal human being. This guy's an offensive lineman because he can do things that other people, he's, about, he's only about 6'5 or 6'6 six, six only, but he's just not a normal man. He was bigger in every way than a person, you know, like that I'm used to being around and, and all of the guys that I was with. And I realized, I tell my friends, I said, I realized that moment when I tried to shake his hand, grab two fingers, that if he wanted to, he could backhand me. And he would snap my back in half. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just obviously that, that, that he, is, he is a totally different person than I am. And I decided maybe I shouldn't be an NFL lineman at that point, you know. So a week later, I changed my mind again. You know, so that, you know how we are, right? Our circumstances change us. And, and for them, man, they saw these circumstances and said, no, it can't be done. But two said, no, it can be done because of how they frame their life, because of how they saw it. If this is what God wants us to do, if this is what God has given us, we would be foolish not to trust God and to frame our circumstances, how we see life, based on who he is. Even though here's still the circumstances, but here's our framework. So here's, here's what I want to ask you. Great time to, right, to do this. What are you struggling with in your circumstances? Is there a, a part of the framework that you've not included God in the framework and ask God, talk to God about how he sees it or what he wants. I'm not saying when you go to God, God will take the circumstances away. It's one of the ways we pray a lot of times, right? God, can you just fix all of this? Can you just take all of this away? Or we, can you just fix them? I mean, that's, that's mostly what we pray. But instead, can, can you say, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to act in the midst of these circumstances that, that even might be contrary to you know, what other people should would think that you should, you should do, how you should act. Because that's the way people see the framework in your life, and that is how God builds faith and endurance, and that's how God actually completes his work um, in your life. So as I, as I like to say, how you frame it changes everything. Oh, it does. How you frame it changes everything. What you're going to do, how you're going to see it, how you're going to look at your, your struggles, your circumstances, you know, we're going to come up on the uh, Super Bowl, right? And those guys that do play, they work for a coach. You know what a coach does? Does a coach try to make life wonderful for his players, happy, everything? No, he puts his players through difficult things. He pushes them. Why? Because they're, they're moving toward a goal to accomplish something. And he knows if they don't learn these things, then they can't accomplish the goal that is set um, in front of them. And it's his job to make their life, in one sense, make it uncomfortable, push them toward the task. Well, God does the same thing with us. God understands life. He knows what we were made for. He knows that there, there's a plan for us and a purpose for us in, in this world. And so God many times takes us through difficult circumstances so that we will trust the framework and we'll move forward and let God finish the work 
uh, that he wants to do in our life. So I'm setting all this up because when you get to this passage, in, in the current culture, this could be one of those really difficult passages to deal with in Ephesians uh, because he's going to talk about husbands and wives. And, uh, and I understand that. Listen, circumstances, you know, uh, opinions, you know, all those things change all the time. But, but what I want you to understand is if you will look at it in the framework of who God is, it will change how you see it. And, and usually it will help you move forward with it and find what God is, is looking to do uh, in your life. So this is the, uh, the paragraph that we've read last two weeks before this. Uh, also, this is what he says in verse 15. He says, so be careful how you what? How you live, how you live your life. Yeah, you want to think about how you live your life. He says, don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. He said, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. I mean, that would apply way back, you know, to in the book of Numbers. You know, there, there's a chance to do good, to do the right thing. There's a chance to, to do the wrong thing and to, and to miss what God has for you. He says, verse 17, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. There's that framework, right? This is how I framed my life. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's God has given us his spirit. Christ has given us his spirit to lead us and to guide us. But we're the ones that have to say, but will you lead me and guide me? Will you fill my life? Will you, will you be the framework that I, that I need in life? He says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks in everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes to this. Here we go. Make you uncomfortable. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What? <laughs> Give yourself to one another. Submit your, you know, to one another out of reverence, out of respect, in a way to serve and honor Christ himself. Okay, I don't know if I really like that, but I see what What is he doing? Why would he make a statement like that? Listen, he's actually going to set it up, but let me tell you what he's doing. He's trying to teach us how to function as a family trying to teach us how to function as, as a group of people who are all individuals, all different. We have different opinions, but we understand what's most important. We understand the God who has framed us, and that is what draws us together and helps us to become one and to move together. Still have different opinions, right? Still look at things differently. Still have different gifts and skills, but he moves us in that way. Then he's really going to get controversial. Here he goes, right? Next verse, he says this. He says, wives... <laughs> This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Let me tell you what it does not mean. And I, I know that I'm going to have the first service, I had some guys groaning when I did this. It does not mean, wives, treat your husband as if he is God. Any guys want to? Okay, I had, didn't, didn't have it. I had in the first service people groaning uh, through that. It doesn't mean you should treat your husband as the same way that you treat God. That is not what the verse means. It's not what he's saying. He's saying you should give yourself to your husband, wives, this is, if you're a wife, this is that part of it, because of your honor to God and your, as your service to God. Doesn't mean he's perfect. Doesn't mean he does everything right. Doesn't mean he's, he's not a jerk sometimes. You know, it, that's not, the, the point is, as you serve God, you give your, yourself to your husband in this way. It's the only way to make it work is that we give ourselves to one another. That, that's what he says. If you don't do that, 
If you don't do that, you miss it. You don't understand how it, how it works. And it's difficult because we don't do the things always that we should do. My wife is actually in here, and she will tell you. He doesn't do that. I know you're, it's going to burst your bubble. What? My pastor didn't know. He's, he's a mess sometimes. In fact, uh, pretty much every day, you know, I, I am. And uh, in so many things, she's better than I am. And I have to learn from her and listen to her because she just sees things and understands things that I don't understand. God made it that way. You're not, you're not an island unto yourself. You're not supposed to be. It doesn't, it doesn't work well that way when you try to make your life that way. I had a guy that was a friend and... Uh, so he was on, I think this was his third marriage. I was telling a group about this. And uh, he was a friend, and, um, but he, he, he got married. Um, he, he fell in love. You know, he, he wooed this, this girl. You know, he courted her. And now, all of a sudden, it was not going quite as well. So he wanted me to come and fix her. And that's what you do. You get the preacher say, you need to come and, you know, can you come fix her and tell her whatever he says you have to do. And he's, oh, yeah, that was exactly where he was going and what he wanted. And he was goes, hey, the Bible says. I said, okay. So he wasn't really happy because when I got there, here's what I discovered in, in listening to her and talking to her and getting to know her. First of all, she was not a believer, not at all. She had no, or, or, or no desire at all to know Christ or any idea about it. That was not her plan at all and and there was nothing that that anyone was going to do to change her opinion but to him you know he looked at her and she was very attractive so that's why he married her but now fix her and I'm like here's what I here's what I said here's how we if you want to fix her here's how you, you need to love her that's what I told him in fact I we went away together he and I and I got on to him the whole time I said you want her to begin with you, 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 you showed her kindness and you know, all these things. There's some reason that she was attracted to you. You need to go back and do that part. You want to fix it? Go back and do your part, right? He didn't like that part, just to let you know. So that didn't work out really well. Because that's what we want. We want somebody to come fix our circumstances. And so many times the biggest problem is who? We're not doing our job. We're not trusting God enough and framing it in our own life enough to say, okay, you know, here's my job. Here's, here's my part of it, my honoring of God in my life. And that, that's exactly what he's saying. So the wives, here's how you honor God. In fact, let me go ahead and read the rest of it. If, if I haven't offended you enough, here's what he says. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. And the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. Do you kind of catch as you're reading this that he's taking marriage and he's using it as an example of, of Christ's relationship to us as his bride? Yeah, it's exactly what he's doing. He's trying to, to show that in the relationship between the husband and wife, there's a picture there of how God loves his people, even though husbands aren't Jesus, right? We're both flawed, you know, in human relationships, but there's this picture that is there, and immediately he's already gone in to the husband's role. Look what it says on the, uh, on the next slide. In fact, I, I did put this in here, um, and this is what the husband's submission looks like, because that's what he's doing. He is submitting himself to his wife when he does the next part. In other words, this is how the husband serves God by doing this, and this is what he says. For husbands, this means... Love your wives. 
I always like it because I, when, I, when I share this with, uh, especially with uh, wives or brides, I say, well, he gets off easy. No, 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 no. He doesn't get off easy at all. You don't understand what he's talking about when he's talking about love then, if you think he gets off easy. And, and honestly, this kind of love is to be demonstrated by him, but we all have to act out this kind of love. He says, husbands, love your wives. He says, just as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave up his life for her. To make her holy and clean. He didn't give up his life for her because she was holy and clean. He gave up his life for us as his bride to make us holy and clean. Washing by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church. A glorious bride. Without any spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way. In the same way. Has he mentioned? In the same way, right? So knowing this, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own what? Whoa. Yeah, because when you love your wife, you are loving yourself. He says, for a man who loves his wife actually loves or shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but he feeds it and he cares for it just as Christ cares for the church and we are members of his body. See, what he's doing is he's drawing you back to this idea of oneness that God created um, in the world. And in the relationship between the husband and wife, God is demonstrating the oneness that God wants to have with us. We are not God. We will never be equal to God, but God has drawn us to himself And in order for that relationship to work out, we have to be holy and blameless. And he took it upon himself to cause that to happen. Now, humanly, you don't do that. But you understand that's part of it. I have to love this person, accept this person, despite their flaws. Even when they don't do the right things. Because the more that you love them and the more that you care for them, the the more they become what they are supposed to be. And it's true, especially in the marriage relationship. We, we tend to, again, look at the circumstances, say, I'm not happy. And we, we miss the framing of how it's supposed to work and what it's supposed to do in our lives. Uh, yesterday morning, I'm driving here uh, in, in uh, uh, a newer car and a different one than I, than I normally drive. It has a fob. You got a fob, right, in your car? And so all you have to do is have it in your pocket. You don't have to, you know, you know use it to crank anything or anything like that. So I've, I've got the fob. I'm driving. I'm stopping somewhere. And all of a sudden, there's this noise. It's like an alarm or something going on. I'm thinking, is, is, this business is still, it's still dark when I was uh, coming up. And I was like, this is really weird and strange. I thought, what is that, what is that sound? Then I noticed my rearview mirror, there are two lights, and they are flashing at the same time. And I'm thinking... Is this me making all of this noise, you know, and this alarm sound? And I'm driving down the road. Yeah, I drive all the way from the freeway all the way back here, and, and my flashers are going off, and there's a, you know, and all going. And I'm driving the whole way, and, of course, people are looking. You know, the, the good thing, you know what that's called? That's called a, an emergency you know, that you can set off, and, and if you do that, people will stop and help you. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> 
They just look at you like, what is up with you? Do you not know how to operate the car? And I didn't. I'm looking on the screen while I'm driving. I know I'm trying to find, okay, is there something that says turn off that noise or what? You know, there's got to be something. It's cold, so sometimes this car actually signals you that it's cold. I know it's cold. Why do I need something to see? You know, but it, you know, it's a smart car, right? And it's funny because we call it a smart car. And, you know, as I'm going down the road, uh, because there's nobody in there, you know, but me and God, and God knows me anyway. So, you know, so as we're going down the road, I'm going, dumb what car right what a dumb car what a, you know it what is it doing what is wrong with this car it's called a smart car actually it does all these things and i get here i get out of the car i look and sure enough the flashers are going i'm just standing there looking at the car what is going on with this thing and then i take the fob and there's a button that you push you know to lock it and i push that and it turns off thinking, what was that all about? It takes me a little while. I'm a little slow, just to let you know. So I came in, I worked for a little while, and after working for a little while, uh, meeting with a group of guys uh, Saturday morning afterwards, I'm still thinking about it, and I started thinking about it. I said, you know what? In my pocket, there are some pills. I have, this is a, a little gel vitamin, yeah. So it's one of those soft whatever. And uh, in my pocket, what if that soft pill pushed the emergency button and set off the car. And that's exactly what happened. And it's all going. And I'm saying, dumb car. And I'm calling the manufacturer. And what's wrong with them? And why didn't it say? And all this, all this time as I'm saying that, who was the problem? Who was the problem? Yeah, it was me. <laughs> I was the problem. I was the one that set it off. I was the one that caused it all. I was the one that had no idea in the midst of it and the embarrassment of it what to do, how to fix it. Listen, it's that way in our life sometimes. And what we have to do is we have to turn back to God and say, God, would you frame out my circumstances? Because so many times I'm the problem. I'm the one that makes it so difficult. I'm the make, one that, that, that causes it not to work well because you, you have a plan and it's a really good plan. And I would really love it if the plan actually was accomplished and the plan actually happened. It would be for my good. It would be for my, as James says, my joy to, to see that plan, you know, worked out. But I'm a lot of times the one that is actually not cooperating. I'm the one that's not going along with the plan because I don't like it or I don't understand it or dumb car, right? How many times have you said dumb marriage, <laughs> dumb family, dumb community? Yeah. And, and we fail to look at ourselves and our own lives and say, wait a minute, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm the one that's not trusting in God and not framing my life out the right way. So I just put this last piece in there. It's the end of the chapter. Paul writes this, and it's such a great summary. In fact, I think if you just look at this last paragraph, you'd be like, wow, just think of what he just did and what he's saying now and the beauty of what he says. This is what he says in the last chapter. He says, and the scriptures say, now the reason he's saying this, remember, James would not have, or Paul would not have considered Ephesians part of the scripture because he's writing a letter to someone. He's talking about it. He's looking at the Old Testament when, or what we understand as Old Testament scrolls back then. And he's looking back at Genesis because this is what it says in Genesis. This was the plan. This was the idea. Jesus actually quotes from the same 
uh, place in Genesis in, in the Gospels. And this is what he says. The scriptures say, a man leaves his father and his mother and he is joined to his who? This is the plan. And the two are united into what? That's, a, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's just this incredible idea that God would take two people who are very different, who see things very differently, but because they trust God and because of how they are framing their life, he could take them and he could bring them together as one. In fact, he even says it in the next, next verse. He says, this is a mystery. It is. It, it, it kind of blows our minds. How does he do this? How does he make this work? But he also says, it's a reflection. It's a picture of what God does in our lives. So this is a mystery, but it is an illustration uh, of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man, here he goes again. Each man must do what? Okay, guys, come on. Each man must love his wife. Yep. Each man must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must, here we go, ladies. The wife must what? Respect her husband. Yep. And when you do that, because of what God has done, because of who he is, you are, you are framing your life with your faith. You're, you're framing your life on who God is. You're framing your life on the promises of who God is. And it's just kind of a core thing that God teaches us to hang on to, to value. And listen, I would say it's one of those things, even in a, in a biological family, that's worth trying as best you can to pass on to your kids. You frame your life on who God is so that they say, oh, that's the way to live. Trust him. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And here's what's really cool about the Lord's Supper. Um, Jesus is taking what is called Passover. And Passover is a celebration of God's rescue of Israel from Egypt when they left Egypt. And um, he sends a death angel into Egypt. But the ones who are exempt from that or are covered from that are those who go to the doorpost of their house, the framework of their house, and they paint the frame of their house with the blood of the lamb. In other words, they are saying, we are covered by, in this case, they had no idea who, who, who Jesus was at this point, just the promise to come. But we are covered by the blood of the lamb. His sacrifice has, has given us life. And Jesus would take his disciples and he would take the bread of Passover and he would break it and he gave it a brand new meaning. He says, this is my body that is broken for you, sacrificed for you so that you would be made holy and clean. He, he took our sins upon himself because they would annihilate us. We'd be gone. But he made us exist. He gave us life by giving himself for us. So Jesus taught them this. He said, this is the bread that came out of heaven. He says, not as your fathers ate and died. He said, he who eats this bread shall live forever. And we know that he took the cup at the end of the meal. It was traditional. And he passed the wine to them and he gave the wine a new meaning. He said, this is the blood of a new covenant. It's his blood that is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And it brings you back into a relationship with God, a living relationship with God. And it, it energizes and brings life to your relationships to one another, including in marriage and everywhere else. Yeah, crosses over all those, those 
boundaries and all those voids and those struggles that we don't know how to cross over, he does by his own life. John would later write, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son cleanses us from all of our sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You know our need. You understand us in ways that we're only beginning to realize because you created us and you created us for a reason, for a purpose. And so many times that's hard for us. Lord, we thank you that you do teach us that if we would put our hope in you, our trust in you, that we would look to you, that you would become the, the substance of our lives, the future of our lives, because of what you've done with the past of our lives. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you've never put your hope in him, what better time? Say, Lord, I, I know there's nothing I can do to make this happen. It's just something I either believe or I don't believe. I can either accept the gift that you've given or reject it. I accept it. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. He gave his life for me. And that he wants to not only forgive me, but he wants to teach me a new way of life and fill me with a new spirit, his spirit, as I live. In Jesus' name I pray.